Hello, I'm Peter Van Dusen, and this is the Primetime Politics Podcast. On Primetime Politics tonight, the parliamentary investigation into allegations of sexual misconduct in the top ranks of the military widens as MPs on the Defence Committee call more key witnesses to probe the government's handling of the allegations. On a day when young women from across Canada mark International Women's Day with a call to make politics more inclusive. And our panel of parliamentary journalists on the Vance allegations and challenges for the Conservative leader. But we'll begin tonight with more questions about the Trudeau government's handling of the allegations of sexual misconduct against former Chief of the Defence Staff, General Jonathan Vance. MPs on the Commons Defence Committee voted to invite the Minister of Defence back to the committee to face more questioning and to invite top political aides to the Prime Minister and Defence Minister and top aides in the former Harper government to testify at the committee about those allegations. Committee members also want to hear from a senior Navy official who reported an allegation of misconduct against the current Chief of Defence Staff and has reportedly been threatened for doing so. The allegations against Vance and how the government handled them also dominated the daily question period in the House. Almost all of the opposition questions on this International Women's Day coming from female MPs. Here's one key exchange. I believe the Ombudsman, Mr. Speaker, when he said that he tried to show the minister evidence and the minister said, no, I don't want to see it. Rather than protecting the very men and women he was supposed to be serving, the minister was more concerned with optics and keeping dirty little secrets. Does the Minister of Defence realize he has failed to do his job? He has lost credibility. He has lost trust. Honourable Minister. Mr. Speaker, as I've said, any allegations that were ever brought forward were immediately put forward to the proper authorities. In fact, the very next day after informing me of the uh, concerns, the former ombudsman was contacted by the Privy Council Office to begin an investigation. There was no evidence that the ombudsman relayed this to the original com complaint, despite repeated follow-ups by senior officials. And as I stated, Mr. Speaker, I look forward for an opportunity to go speak at committee once again. Thank you. Well, let's bring in three members of Parliament now to discuss the latest efforts to get answers on the sexual misconduct allegations at the highest levels of the Canadian military. Anita Vandenbelt is the Parliamentary Secretary to the Minister of National Defence. Michael Barrett is the ethics critic for the official opposition Conservatives. And Randall Garrison is the defence critic for the NDP. It's good to see you all. Uh, look, here we are on International Women's Day and we're focused on the continuing problem of sexual misconduct in the military and allegations of inappropriate behaviour against the former Chief of the Defence Staff and, in fact, his replacement. Um, but that's where we are. Anita Vandenbelt, let me start with you. The Liberals agreed today to, uh, to, the recall, to recall the defence minister and some top political aides in the, uh, in the government connected to this story. Um, let, me, let me start there. Uh, they were brought into the loop, those top officials on the Vance allegations. What questions do you have for them when they get to committee? Well, I think that uh, the minister uh, has always been very, very willing to come to committee. Um, I think that we will actually be able to uh, get more information than we did because uh, we know that Mr. Walburn's testimony uh, did open up uh, some, some avenues. But what I think the most important thing is, is that the more information that comes out, the more that we see, the more it corroborates the fact that the minister 
took action. He took the appropriate action uh, that the senior officials wanted to start an investigation in 2018. Um, and at the end of the day, if you have a complainant that does not want to come forward, or you have Mr. Wellborn, uh, we don't even know if he if he told the complainant that PCO wanted to do an investigation. It is really difficult because what you what you need to do. What I think at the end of the day, there was nothing actionable in 2018. And why, the, why couldn't what, a government uh, official have called? Gen, why couldn't a government official have called General Vance into the office and said, "Look, we are hearing about allegations of sexual misconduct. Is there anything we should know?" You don't go to the person and tell them. I, I think anyone who's been part of an investigation knows that a woman comes forward and says, I, I don't want to do an investigation. I don't want my name out. I want confidentiality. The last thing you do is go and tell the person. Right. Uh, I think it did as a former detective in Vancouver, knowing that you have to make sure that everything is done appropriately, he went to the senior authorities who then wanted to start an investigation, but at the end of the day, the ombud either couldn't or wouldn't provide the information or the email or whatever it is that was there, and you can't start an investigation when you don't have evidence, and I think that's where we're at now. All right, Mr. Um, Mr. Barrett, did you, do you agree with that, that, there, that once it was clear, the, and, and Mr. Walburn's clear about that, the informant uh, did not want uh, her, her name to be, to be brought forward. Uh, is that the end of the conversation then? No, absolutely not. And there's a number of things that could have been done. And if the contention is that the minister's actions were the appropriate ones, which we don't agree that uh, they were, that there were other steps that officials could have taken in, in uh, carrying out an investigation. And I think the comparison to... Um, to the minister's time as a uh, as a police officer would would bear that out that um, that uh, it wouldn't be case closed um, simply after one phone call or an email chain. The minister failed to take appropriate action on sexual assault allegations. These are three years old, and over that period of time, the government has gone to great lengths to make sure they don't come forward. And and we've heard that you know the 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 media reports this weekend that the government undertook a coordinated campaign to threaten and and to try and silence a member of the Canadian forces from reporting something as serious as sexual misconduct. I got to tell you, when you well, have... Well, that, that's the report. Have we, have we seen any evidence that actually any, any the government denies that it made any of those calls that, uh, that uh, you know, Commander Trotters uh, reported to... Uh, well, the story is that he was threatened. Uh, or re some sort of anonymous threats, but has anybody been able to tie that back to anyone yet? I mean, he's coming. To, he's coming to the defense committee, so they'll be able to ask him. Well, uh, absolutely, and and that's the that's the thing about uh, about this type of uh, about this type of situation. I mean, you're either you're either uh, you're either part you're cooperating or you're part of the the cover up. And what we're not seeing is is forthrightness from this government. Both. Minister uh, Sajin and Prime Minister Trudeau have been found to be on the different side of what the whistleblowers are saying. And I'm inclined to believe uh, the women in this. Mr. Case. Garrison, what, what more uh, could the minister have done here if, it, if the, uh, the person at the centre of the claim uh, at the allegation doesn't want her name revealed, may not want to pursue it? I guess that those are still, I mean, uh, does that mean nobody then questions General Vance about, you know, his past at all and it, it ends there? Well, I think on International Women's Day, we have to back up a step here and look at what we're trying to accomplish. And that is we're trying to have a Canadian forces where it isn't part of the culture that sexual misconduct is tolerated. And what the examples of the two uh, allegations against chief of defense staff make me worry about is that at the highest levels in the Canadian forces and 
in truth, in the minister's office and in high government offices, there's not a real understanding of what it means to stamp out sexual misconduct. And these are examples where we can get caught in the details of which door was knocked on, which mechanism was used, when what we should be doing is trying to find out why after six years and a failed program called Operation Honor, we still have a culture in the Canadian forces that tolerates this kind of behavior, and we have a government that has failed to effectively but specifically, investigate allegations. But, but specifically on this allegation, if, if, if the Privy Councillor, if the Privy Council official uh, and, and the Chief of Staff to the Minister at the time uh, try uh, to find out more information, that door closes to them. What else should be expected of them, Mr. Garrison? Well, I think the military ombudsman was quite clear in his testimony. He did not say that the person who came forward wanted no action. He did not say that the person who came forward would never allow their name to be used. What he was trying to do was find a process which protect that person from recriminations, from damage to their career, and uh, ways to provide support to them. Which is what, uh, what everybody, what everyone wall. should be focused on in a case like this, right? Is, That's right. And what he got was a stonewall in the minister's office and, and passing the buck off to PCO, which is not an investigative body for these kind of allegations by any means. So when you've got serious allegations against two chief of defense staff in a row, then we need to have an inquiry into what's actually going on here. All right. Uh, Anita Vandenbelt, uh, let me have you pick up on that. So yes, and, and go, go ahead. Talk. Uh, I think that we really do have to focus on the women. And yes, we have been working on this for a number of years. Is there more to do? Absolutely. I think the thing that comes out of this that is the most concerning is the fact that the women didn't feel they could come forward. We need to create a culture where women do feel they can come forward. But at the end of the day, you have to respect what the women's wishes are. And the fact is, after PCO contacted Mr. Walborn, we don't know if But, but, but to Mr. Garrison's point, is it, is it, is it, to Mr. Garrison's point, is it, is it clear of what, I mean, you know, in, in, for some people, it sounds like the investigation hits, a, or not even investigation, the, the potential inquiry into what actually happened hits a dead end, uh, as Mr. Garrison has suggested, unresolved because, to his point, Mr. Walborn didn't say that, that the woman who came forward never wanted to have her name used or never wanted to proceed. Uh, it was at that point. What more should have been done? We're seeing more and more that as things are coming out, uh, that that's exactly what happened. There were emails back to Mr. Walburn asking him to share the information or evidence with PCO. There were multiple attempts to try to get that information because PCO wanted okay. to start an investigation. All right, and Mr. Also, Mr. Mr. Barrett, we're short, we're short on time. I've got to move ahead. Mr. Barrett, so if, if that's the case, uh, next steps here, where does this committee go uh, in terms of pushing to get answers here to find out what more could have been done. Sounds like the Liberals are clear they think they did everything. Well, uh, they they did everything they could to keep this from coming to light for three years, and now we're, uh, we're on their doorstep. The opposition's on their doorstep looking for answers. I mean, it, it's important to note that the minister publicly said he was surprised to learn of these allegations uh, about the former chief of defense staff two weeks ago, but now we know that um, the only things he didn't know was because he refused, he refused to do the right thing and to protect okay. the women who came forward. That's a, that's an unbelievable revelation. So he will be in front of committee and he's going to need to answer for that. It's also clear to, I, I think it's very important, Mr. Garrison's point that um, PCO isn't an, an, an investigative body. And so 
you know, we heard this this weird uh, comment from the minister about a, a chain of evidence. Well, that only matters if there's a criminal investigation. If the minister believed criminality occurred, he had an obligation to report this to to the police, and he failed to do that. Mr. Garrison, it occurs to me that uh, Mr. Sajjan's coming back. One of the one of the things Mr. Uh, Walburn said at committee is, look, if you have somebody from government come back to refute my testimony, please have me back so I can speak to what they've said in, in refuting my testimony. Do you think he needs to come back if Harjit Sajjan's coming back? I guess we could get into a long chain of this, Great. but I want to hear from the minister. Obviously, what he said in his first appearance before the committee has been directly contradicted by the testimony of the ombudsman. I believe the military ombudsman is an honorable man who has no reason at all to try and deceive the committee. So the minister now has an obligation to square that circle, okay. to tell us why he doesn't think that testimony was right, which he said in a public statement. All right, we'll continue to follow the, your committee's work. Uh, thank you all for your time tonight. I appreciate it. Thank you. Well, as we have mentioned, this is International Women's Day. And to mark the day, Daughters of the Vote, an event organized by Equal Voice, brought together 338 young women and gender-diverse youth from every federal riding in Canada. 34 of them had the chance to speak to a simulated virtual sitting of the House of Commons today. The multi-partisan program aimed at getting more women elected to legislatures across the country, including the House of Commons, where less than 100 of the MPs are women now. The Daughters of the Vote delegates spoke about the issues they believe are important, perhaps uh, issues that are overlooked, and their lived experiences and their visions for a better Canada. Two of those young women are with me now. Uh, let me introduce them to you. Mirabel Harris-Eza is a law student, uh, the delegate for Calgary Signal Hill, and Julia Hutlett is pursuing a Juris Doctor degree. She is the dele delegate rather, for Winnipeg North. Thank you both for taking time to speak with me today. Great to see you. Thank, Thank you, you for having me. Uh, Mirabel, let me start with you. Let me, let me start by asking you, uh, what drove you uh, to take an interest in Daughters of the Vote and to become involved, more involved in the political process? Yeah, definitely. So I've always had the belief that representation matters. And when you look at the House of Commons, commonality is meant to mean everyone. It's meant to mean that it represents the entirety of Canada and it's everyone's house. And so when the House of Commons doesn't look like Canada, that's a problem because there's different voices that are just marginalized and aren't allowed to be part of the conversation or there's just gaps that inherently are just going to arise. And so for me, learning about this process um, meant learning more about how I can make my parliament look more like Canada, learning more about how I can ensure that marginalized communities' voices are being uplifted, how I can ensure that my communities um, have a seat at the table too. And so that was a big part of that. And also just learning more about how to increase representation of women in politics, because it's been um, sure a century or decades since um, women have been afforded the right to vote. And yet we still are not making up 50% of the parliament. And I think that that's a huge issue. And so I want to learn about how to address that as well. Julia, what motivated you to be part of this process for change to see more women in politics? I wanted to become part of the Daughters of the Vote because I've noticed in my writing as well that it doesn't look as it should in regards to Parliament. So I wanted to inspire other Indigenous women to run for office. And I feel like it's important for me as an Indigenous woman for 
other Indigenous women in my community to see themselves as it's possible to be in the House of Commons, even if it's virtual. Right. Uh, Mirabelle, you you spoke in your remarks today, you spoke about, uh, you know, the, the need to, uh, to affect change here and uh, justice reform and the need to deal with incarceration rates in this country. Uh, what needs to change and how do you make that change occur? Yeah, definitely. And, and so that's that's a really big question. I don't necessarily know if I have all the answers, but I do know that um, there definitely needs to be more diversity on across the board when it comes to police forces, when it com- comes to the legal practice, the judiciary, juries, everyone involved. And in, I guess making sure that justice happens in this country um, when those spaces aren't being filled with, um, you know, when those spaces don't represent the entirety of Canada, there's things that propagate and there's systemic prejudice that propagates, maybe not even necessarily knowingly on the behalf of certain people, but it gets to the point that when it happens over and over again, there's certain things that happen. And you look at it when you look at how um, Indigenous people make up maybe 5% of the population and yet over 30% of those incarcerated. And same with Black communities, 3% of the population and 8% of those federally incarcerated. And you look at that and you can't say that Black and Indigenous people are inherently more deviant or criminal because we don't live in a vacuum and there's serious um, work that needs to be done in terms of making that um, those statistics not be the reality. And so what I'm asking or calling on the government to do is to really talk with these communities and look at how can we address, you know, disproportionate um, policing and, and the violence and, and ways in which that's engaged with, with um, marginalized communities, looking at justice reform in terms of applying critical race theory um, to um, different policies um, and getting disaggregated data so you can make more actionable, you know, policy decisions. But these are things you can, you, you really can only make happen if you uh, get into what I guess I call the system. There, there's a lot of reasons. Uh, Julia, let me ask you, uh, you, you, you suggested you want more Indigenous women to become involved in politics. But, you know, for, for you know, many marginalized communities in this country, federal politics in, per, in particular, is a big giant turnoff. They don't, they don't feel that politicians speak for them. Uh, how do you make that pivot? How do you uh, get people to understand, look, the only way that change happens is if we see us represented in in that federal political system. That's how the change occurs from from inside. Is that a fair assessment? I think that's an interesting observation. It is important to note that politics in Canada is a colonial institution. The House of Commons is a settler colonial institution. So it's not that Indigenous people don't want to be in the House of Commons. It's that it wasn't built for us as Indigenous people. So it's important for Canadians to make room and notice that Indigenous voices need to be heard, even in Parliament, in legislatures, in the Supreme Court of Canada. It's so important for these voices to be heard. And I wouldn't say that it's because we don't want to be there. We do want to be there. But Indigenous people in Canada have, like, statistically lower socioeconomic statuses which means that we don't have the same funding. We can't have extraordinary funded campaigns like some other MPs can. Equal Voice has a school for um, female politicians who want to run, who don't know how to run, have the opportunity to attend the Indigenous Forum on Thursday with Equal Voice. And several of the MPs mentioned that they didn't have the same funding as other MPs in their writings. And I think that that's just the disadvantage of it. I wouldn't say that we don't want to be in Parliament at all. Okay, the, the time's kind of short, but let me let me ask you this. So you've now gone through the process of Daughters of the Vote. Um, what What's it done to your 
desire, your appetite to want to take this further and, and, and actually maybe take the, the next big step at some point and run for elected office? Uh, or, or has it make you has it made you question that possibility at all? Maribel, let me start with you. Yeah, sure. Um, well, I'm not 100% sure right now whether I do want to run or not. I can say that the conference has left me more willing to entertain that reality. And I think, you know, the truth is I'm 22 and I'm still in law school and I'm still trying to figure everything out. But I do know that I'm a lot more confident about that possibly becoming a reality because I've seen so many, you know, different um, amazing women that have become involved in politics and, you know, taken that risk and thrown their hat in the ring. So I'm not sure is really the short story, but um, I am a lot more confident about potentially doing it in the future. All right, Julia, how about you? I know that I do want to be involved and I've known that from the start as another law student. I still am on the path of figuring that out, but I do think it's important for us BIPOC folks to get our voices out there. And I think that if it's not in politics, it probably will be as a judge. All right. Well, we're going to watch. We expect big things from both of you, no matter uh, where you make your mark. But uh, surely you'll make a mark somewhere. And thanks for your time today. Appreciate it. Thank you so much. All right. Let's bring in our Monday panel of parliamentary journalists now. Today, we're joined by Susan Delacourt, columnist with the Toronto Star. Mia Rapson is with the Canadian Press and Joelle Denis Belavos, the parliamentary bureau chief for La Presse. Good to see you all. Um, Susan, here we are in International Women's Day and the prime minister and his government are facing a barrage of questions and a widening probe into the sexual misconduct allegations against the former defense chief, Jonathan Vance, um, accusations of inaction in dealing with the allegations. Look, at, let, me, let me start there. How, how damaging could this issue be to the government and in particular to the prime minister's brand? Uh, very. I, um, I, I was quite struck, though, by how much the prime minister was sticking by uh, Minister Sajjan last week. And the fact that on International Women's Day, Sometimes there is a tradition where they have women asking and answering all the questions in the House. Uh, but Mr. Sajjan, such is the now, this, this has moved to the top of the opposition agenda and the government agenda, and it was Minister Sajjan who was doing all the answering today. I'm not sure that we got any real answers, but that's not unusual for question period. But I do think that on International Women's Day, uh, some th this this issue, the Prime Minister is... He's right to say that this has been a big issue for him. Back when he was in opposition, this was an issue uh, on which he, he tried to stake out a feminist-friendly uh, ground. And for this to be dogging him right now on International Women's Day, as you say, is, is, is damaging to the brand. Mia, what are your thoughts on this? It was interesting to hear Sajjan today because you know, he kept saying he looks forward to showing up committee. He provided a little bit more information maybe about what, what the Privy Council Office did with the, the military ombudsman after the allegations were first raised. It suggests there's maybe more to the story that the government hasn't released, but that sort of comes back to this government's sort of allergy to providing information. They, they, they sort of keep every little detail that they can private until they absolutely have to release it. Why they wouldn't have come forward already and provided any of the information that that they have to, to explain what actually happened, why it took more than a week for us to realize that the Privy Council Office had in fact tried to look into this, this case. Um, it, it talks 
sort of speaks to how difficult sometimes these are to investigate. And it also suggests that, as many have said, we need a better way to inve investigate allegations of this kind in the military. Clearly, this is not a one-off case. The government needs to move very quickly to try and figure out a better way to investigate. Yeah, this 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 net the committee's casting is getting wider and wider as well, Denise. It's going, going to go back now and, 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 and ask... Uh, Ray Novak, who worked for Jason Kenney, and Stephen Harper to appear to, to talk about uh, General Vance and what uh, the previous government might have known about all of this. Uh, how do you view this? Is this a big problem for Justin Trudeau? Or, uh, I, you know, how, much, how important will it be depending on where this investigation goes? Well, it depends how well Mr. Arjit Sajjan, the defense minister, performs while he will testify. He wants to testify again in front of the committee. Um, there is a clash of versions between his version and the one from the ombudsman, former ombudsman of the armed forces, uh, Gary Mel Wellborn. Now, Mr. Uh, Sajan said in the House of Commons today an interesting comment that it's not up to politicians to investigate those allegations. Right. Well, I would say that it's up to ministers to make sure that if there is no investigation, that there is a full investigation. So uh, there might be a fault line there. Uh, but his next uh, testimony before the Defence Committee, when it happens, promises to be a very interesting uh, testimony. Susan, the Conservatives have a virtual policy convention coming up in 10 days from now. And leading into that uh, gathering, there are a virtual gathering, lots of questions swirling around Aaron O'Toole's leadership and the battle for control of the party. How serious are his problems and how does he deal with them? You know, I just thought this was the normal stuff of uh, new leaders for about a, a month or two there. But the fact that it's getting out now, the fact that you're seeing members of parliament not naming themselves, of course, um, but members of parliament uh, whispering to the media. I, I joke that, you know, disgruntled liberals used to be a beat on Parliament Hill. And uh, now we do seem to have disgruntled conservatives. And it's a, it, it's a pretty strong rift uh, that, that dogs Mr. O'Toole himself. It's what he did to become leader versus what he wants to do to become prime minister. And uh, those are two different things. We've talked about that on this panel before. Yeah. You know, either you win a leadership one way, you win an election another way. And the party is having trouble with this. And this is now Mr. O'Toole's problem. I find it, um, I wrote about this, I, I find it unfortunate that they're having a virtual convention because some of this stuff is the stuff you work out in the hallways or in the bars or in the hospitality suites at a convention, right. at a real convention. Hard to do and that virtually. This one is, is, is virtual. There, there's no chance to do that. So I, I don't know that the convention is going to solve any of these problems. Mia, what responsibility, I think Susan touched on it, does Aaron O'Toole bear for, for these troubles now? And it makes me wonder, during the leadership race, it, it's the kind of thing that you know, Peter McKay may have seen coming because he was clear out of the gate saying, here's how I'm going to deal with social conservative issues in, in, in the party. And uh, that probably cost him the leadership. And so what about that? What, 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 what responsibility does Mr. O'Toole have for where he is now? Well, I mean, he's the leader of the party, so all of the responsibility, really. I mean, he's the one who ran his leadership campaign the way he did. He's the one who courted certain part, uh, segments of the party to win that vote. Uh, he's the one who's responsible for the actions and the policies that he's enacting now. So when it comes to his leadership, it's all on Aaron O'Toole. These are not new issues for the Conservative Party. Abortion in particular and, and the social conservative wing and how they how the two sides of, the, of that party figure out a way forward is, is sort of an age-old story for the Conservatives. 
motives. So the fact that he, we're going into this again um, and having these questions rise, I mean, many people think it was one of the main reasons why Andrew Scheer did so poorly in the last election. So Aaron O'Toole not being able to see forward and see his way out of that or have a plan or a strategy to do that, absolutely, he bears responsibility for that. I also take what Susan said quite, and I think it's an important note. Not only is this this uh, convention virtual, everything about this has been virtual for Aaron O'Toole. He has not really been in a room with conservatives in person uh, since he became leader for sure, but even throughout the leadership race, he didn't have a chance to make those in-person connections. And I think some of this might be because of that. Um, but we're still months into this. This is all. This is all on them to figure out, and so clearly he hasn't figured out a way to to, to solve the problem. You know, yet. and here we are with the possibility of, of a snap election at some point hanging over us, Gerald and Ian. Nothing is more the enemy of, of, of an opposition party that wants to form government uh, than viewers thinking they can't get their own act together. So, how important is that that convention? I suppose the days following that for Mr. O'Toole. It is a critical convention, as you mentioned, we might have a snap election this uh, this spring. And and for the Conservative Party and for Mr. O'Toole particularly, he needs to put a, to rest the issues that divides Canadians, namely the social issues. And that's uh, always a, an eternal beginning for a new leader of the Conservative Party. You have to deal with those issues uh, uh, every time they come to, uh, to, to, to lead that party. Now, we, uh, Peter, you, we know we always describe the job of the opposition party as the toughest one in the country in normal times. These are not normal times. So it's even tougher for Mr. O'Toole to get some uh, some some attention, media attention, because all of the attention is on the government and the uh, way it is managing the uh, pandemic th th these days. All right. Uh, lots to look forward to uh, in the days and weeks ahead. Uh, thank you all for your time today. Great to talk to you all. And we'll see you again soon. Take care. Thank you. Thank you. And that is all the time we have for this edition of Primetime Politics from all of us here at CPAC. Thanks for watching. Until next time.